to me, nutrition without compromise means to have access to the healthiest food that we can grow on this planet Earth. And we can do that with building the soil and creating the most nutritious soil. What goes into the soil goes into our bodies and goes into the product. And so nutrition without compromise really is creating the best food chain supply using the best ingredients and the best organic and regenerative methods. Welcome to Nutrition Without Compromise, a podcast brought to you by Orlo Nutrition. We believe that nutrition shouldn't be an either or, that you should never have to sacrifice your morals for your health or that of our home planet. Join natural products veteran Karina Belizzi and experts from around the globe as they discuss healthy solutions that are better for you and better for the planet. Thanks for joining me today for another discussion around nutrition and health without compromise. I'm your host, Karina Belizzi. Today, we're going to dive into topics related to obtaining healthy food in a changing environment as we connect with Carol Levine and Ken Lee co-founders and co-CEOs of Lotus Foods, a company that has been in business for more than 25 years now. They have been hard at work transforming how we get some of the most vital staples to people across the globe that we consume each and every day, and that is simply rice. Today, we're going to learn about a different and better way of growing rice so that you can reap its benefit without overtaxing our environment and even without flooded farming. With that, I want to thank you all and introduce you to Carol and Ken. Welcome to the show. Thank you, Karina. Great to be here. Thanks for having us. Oh, thank you so much for coming on. I think this allows us to open a new conversation. We're going to get into regenerative and organic certifications and these two differences and how they're ultimately going to transform how we procure and grow our foods, which I'm excited about. But I'd like to start by simply asking you, what does nutrition without compromise mean to you? To me, nutrition without compromise means to have access to the healthiest food that we can grow on this planet Earth. And we can do that with building the soil and creating the most nutritious soil. What goes into the soil goes into our bodies and goes into the product. And so nutrition without compromise really is creating the best food chain supply using the best ingredients and the best organic and regenerative methods. And to me, it speaks to the perception that food should be cheap and that it speaks to the systems that dominate the landscape for agriculture, which prioritizes things like yield and kind of shelf life type of issues rather than the natural goodness that comes from some of the biodiversity of plants that exist, that if we cultivated would actually address some of the externalized cost of how we produce food that cause things like the extreme climate that we're facing now. So we can grow food that's nutritious, that at the same time addresses some of the biggest issues we have around climate and water scarcity and the loss of biodiversity, which impacts the type of soil quality that exists. Well, you both mentioned soil, and I think this is something that's vital for us all to consider because as it stands, 
we get a lot of the microbiome that we have today from the foods we consume and even those microorganisms that exist in the soil that we grow our food in. So I'd like for you to talk about something that was really a surprise to me because as we first connected, and I think many people will relate to this, I learned that flood farming of rice wasn't the only way. And so I'd like for you guys to start, kick us off with really helping us understand how rice can be grown using less water and actually produce a very nutritious and affordable food. Yeah, I think just to kind of kick it off, I think there's somehow a perception that the things that we've done for millennia are, there's some type of wisdom in there, and that's the way that it is. And I think that's why people think naturally that rice would grow in flooded rice fields and rice paddies. What we've learned over the years is that rice is not actually an aquatic plant. It just has learned to survive in flooded fields. And it also serves a real purpose, and that's to mitigate the weeds. So if farmers can transplant from a nursery into the production rice field into standing water, what they've done is created the environment where weeds can't compete because there's no oxygen. And of course, weeds, just like plants, need oxygen to start. And so, but this also contributes to the tremendous usage of water, our most precious resource on the planet, because rice fields that are flooded kind of accounts for, say, one quarter to one third of Earth's fresh water goes into flooded rice fields to produce the rice crop on planet Earth every year. So it doesn't have to be that way. And I think you alluded to it in the opening that there are new ways to grow rice. It's known internationally as the system of rice intensification, which we as a company at Lotus Foods, we market as more crop per drop because this is a way to grow rice in uh, non-flooded fields, which can produce more rice using less inputs, less seeds, less water, no agrochemicals, and raise livelihood for farmers. So that's kind of a, a prelude into this whole question that we started with in terms of nutrition without compromise, how we can achieve several things at once. Also, the only other thing that I wanted to share with you as well is that when you don't flood a field or when you flood a field, it creates methane, so which is one of the most noxious CO2 gases and one of the things that is creating so much of our global warming. So with unflooded rice fields, you're actually saving 40 to 60% of that methane emissions that are not going into the atmosphere. So that's a huge benefit. But just by the way we change how rice is grown, and this is a agroecological methodology, and just by the way we change how rice is grown, we can have both environmental, social, and economic impacts. So as a company, we just thought this is a no-brainer that doesn't get better than this. Yeah, and I think the point about being a methodology is that it's not a technology. It's not owned by anyone. It's open source. And so what we've seen over the years as we've worked to introduce this into the marketplace is that farmers actually are feeling empowered by this introduction of this new way to grow rice because they can grow more with less. They don't have to buy expensive chemicals, which doesn't pollute their land or makes the soil such that it doesn't retain water as well. And as Carol mentioned, the mitigation of methane emissions, there's all kinds of 
benefits that accrue to farmers by not flooding the fields. So you see a lot of times rice on a planetary basis is grown on the backs of women. And those women have certain kind of pain points, drudgery, if you will, by working in flooded fields, which are unsanitary conditions with uh, disease vectors like malaria due to mosquitoes or gynecological problems by sitting in thigh high water, you know, planting seedlings and things like that. Or just, you know, the think about it, we have unprecedented heat engulfing the planet. And yet these are people who work outside in that heat. And so then, I mean, there's, there's glare off the water as it's flooded into their eyes. There's an amazing chart that we could make available. This woman charted all the pain points, the drudgery that women endure. And so that's an, another point about, you know, sometimes all we do is look at yield in agribusiness, but what about the human health side of, you know, these farmers? And when we talk about smallholder farmers, they're the ones that are growing most of the food. It's not big business. And so it's really essential that the way we grow rice has to be improved, especially as we consider onboarding another billion people on the planet. And Karina, if I may, also when you talk about, you know, not compromising in nutrition, when you use this methodology, and there's really just six simple steps, but one of the steps is when you create a rice field with younger transplants, transplanted rice, and giving it more spacing, and then in rows so that you can actually take a conical weeder through the rows, which is a machine that a woman can actually push and be standing up to take care of the weeds, and also it aerates the soil. But what happens, you're getting a bigger root mass. So because the flooded fields, there's not standing water, so the roots have to go deeper into the soil. And what happens is you're getting a stronger and larger root ball because there's more photosynthesis happening too. And so all those micronutrients in the soil are being taken up by this rice plant and coming into the kernel of rice itself. So you're getting a more nutritious product as well. Well, not only more nutritious, but I would imagine the yield is comparable to whether you had tightly packed those plants. And this is a common concept that we hear about in regenerative farming, where giving the plant space to mm. actually fan out its leaves and absorb the sun's light allows it to grow bigger and more healthfully and then be more disease resistant as well. And so what I would love to hear from you as we get a little bit deeper on this particular subject is what it took for you to ultimately be certified as regenerative organic. So when Regenerative Organic Alliance, which is the group out of Rodale, and this was really from the leadership of Patagonia and Dr. Bronner's, when they decided to help create a regenerative organic certification because they needed, they really felt that we needed to go beyond organic. At first, we were a little bit skeptical because we didn't need, we also thought who needed another bug on their label, that consumers were already confused with the non-GMO verification project and organic. And, but also when we were invited to be a pilot part of their pilot program while they were creating the standards, we felt that that was our opportunity to be the voice of the smallholder farmers. 
So we accepted to be part of the pilot. And as we got into it, we really recognized how beneficial this certification was. Because unfortunately, with anything that happens in the food and beverage industry, there's a lot of greenwashing. So all of a sudden, regenerative became the word of the year. And, you know, what does it really mean to be regenerative? Well, if you don't go through the third party certification process, that has to do not only with soil, but it has to do with, and the first premise is organic, but from there it builds on that into the soil, but also it has to do with animal welfare, if there's animals that are being used in the production of the product, and also fair trade, which is, had been a tenet of Lotus Foods since the beginning as well. So we really felt that this was a way to also assure our consumers that SRI was also what, which we call more crop per drop, was truly regenerative. Yeah, and I think for us to actually qualify for the ROC or the regenerative organic certification, we had to also be fair trade certified and organic certified. And I think it was smart the way that the ROA did this was because we already have certifiers going out to the field to inspect uh, what's happening, what the conditions are. And so it wasn't like reinventing the wheel. They have the certifiers out there already. And for whatever the ROC certification required, if it wasn't covered under the fair trade or organic audit, they could just simply add those things with the same auditor to take care of that. So the cost would be minimized as opposed to just having to do it all over again. So, but I think what Carol mentioned was, you know, recognizing that we wanted to be the voice of the smallholder farmers, because looking at some of the early participants as the pilot project unfolded, many of them were large scale farming enterprises, many of them here in the United States. And of course, as I mentioned before, most food is not produced by large scale production. Most food is produced in the world by smallholder farmers. And that's why we felt it really important to be the voice of those smallholder farmers so that when someone says, hey, this certain kind of testing only cost $100, well, $100 is not much here, but it's a significant amount of money there. And so little things like that, and just to kind of, as the standard evolves, we could be part of the uh, feedback loop to evolve that process. So it's wonderful that actually working with our Indian supply chain partners and farmers that our Lotus Foods Basmati rice is the first rice that is certified regenerative organic. Well, it's fantastic. And it certainly gives me more faith in the future of food if we have a certification like this out there that is ultimately gaining steam because we need more solutions like that. Karina, could I just add one other thing? Oh, of course, please. With this certification, the other thing that I feel is really important and something I'm really excited about is if through the certification, if we could get more kind of validation or verification at the farm level, my hope is that we can somehow monetize the opportunity for farmers. What do I mean by monetize? You know, if we can show the soil improvement or if we can show how much methane is mitigated by having uh, not flooded fields all the time, then I'm sure there are all these large companies who are endeavoring to be part of the solution to the climate crisis. Just like right now, people pay you know, carbon credits to offset their carbon emissions. Why not have a program where the good work being done by the farmers is actually doing that 
uh, more of an insetting program where farmers actually get the benefit. And then that would spark an interest in terms of adoption of these practices by other farmers. Because let's face it, farmers or farming is more and more difficult, more and more people are leaving farming. But if we can make it viable because there's an influx of monies to incentivize this type of good practices, then many more people could seek and find stability in farming. And at the same time, we're sequestering carbon. We're hopefully going to also allow the viability of heirloom or traditional varieties, which taste better in my mind. And so we can achieve these things, but we need to somehow create a movement where people have an awareness of why it makes a difference and how you grow rice. Since, you know, the other fun fact is more than half the world's population derives its caloric intake from the consumption of rice. So even though it's got some problems in the traditional way it's grown, those can be overcome with an adoption of these type of new best practices. Well, I want to deepen our conversation on this particular topic, because as we really think about regenerative solutions, we also connect to what I think you're alluding to overall, which is ultimately a cascade of benefits where we are benefiting the farmer, we are also benefiting the climate, and we're feeding humanity with a more nutritious rice, Mm. ultimately building a system by which we can feed that extra 1 billion. I don't want to call people extra, but an Mm. extra 1 billion people that we anticipate having on this planet in the coming decades. And so if we are going to create systems that are going to nourish them, we need to think about creating solutions that are circular, and also have that cascade of benefits. And this is a topic I dug into in my other podcast, Care More, Be Better, when I interviewed Nina Simons about her new book. She made the introduction to you lovely people. And so I just feel so blessed with that because ultimately you're putting into practice this type of a solution where we are creating a world that can ultimately be regenerative if we just shift our mindset about how we do things, and then put some practical steps in action. You also mentioned that it was just six or seven steps. I wonder if you could briefly describe that. And then I'd love to get into talking about your tagline and your new book. (laughs) Great. Yeah. So Carol mentioned some of them already, but just to recap, the system of rice intensification, just to add a little context, this was something that was, I don't know if he stumbled into it, but this a Jesuit agronomist priest, Father Lalane in Madagascar, he was tasked with going there to kind of alleviate poverty, to help farmers have greater yields. And I think it's through observation, he saw that the water had broken away from the flooded field. And he noticed that the rice that was growing, that was growing better than the, the rice that was not in flooded fields was growing better than the rice that was in flooded fields. So they kind of Riff took kind of played around with that whole concept and came up with the system of rice intensification. And so I think the first step is to use younger seedlings that are eight to 15 days old. And so, just to, so your listeners understand, normally when rice field farmers are transplanting seedlings from a nursery, they're 30 to 40 days old. So they're bigger. They may look like a stalk of green onions that you buy in a grocery store, maybe a foot, foot and a half tall. And so the eight or 15 day old seedlings are just maybe six or seven inches. And then instead of bundling them in a bunch of six or seven, they might just 
they would plant just one single seedling, which looks very Spartan. And then that single seedling is planted in rows with a bit of spacing. Could be 15 inches, could be 20 inches. It really depends on the variety of the seed. So farmers are encouraged to play around with that spacing. But then not only is it spaced wider, it's in rows. And so the rows actually allow a simple conical weeder, something that turns the soil to aerate the soil, but also to turn the weeds back underground to be more biomass to feed the rice plant itself. And it's, as I mentioned, aerating the soil, which promotes more soil biota growth. And so they can weed up and down, left and right, because it's planted in a grid pattern. And I think Carol alluded to it before was because it's, it looks like a hand lawnmower, it's got a handle on it and you push it through the rows and that's done in an upright position, which is a, sounds like, so what? But what it means is farmers aren't constantly bent over in the field. And what you see in some communities is women who are bent over permanently because they've been doing that type of backbreaking work for so long. So again, back to the drudgery that I was pointing to. And so now you got your fields and so you're weeding and maybe you do it two or three times a year during the growing cycle. And that takes care of the weeds from competing for nutrients with the rice plant. And so what you see with the younger seedlings has to do with a fancy word called philocrons, I believe. And that just means <laughs> the cycle of how many times the plant can start regenerating or generating the arms of the plant. So they're called tillers and panicles. And so you see more of them. And that's where the rice hangs off. That's what the rice sprouts from. Mm. And so what you'll see when you, it's a classic photo. If you ever go online and look at SRI, invariably, you'll see a picture of a farmer with holding two stalks of rice in one in each hand. And one of them is SRI and the other one is a side-by-side field comparison. And you can just see how big the root ball is on the SRI rice because the water is not right there. And so the roots have to dive deeper. And so that root ball is actually a solid foundation for the rice when the monsoon winds blow later in the year, which could damage the crop and the yield because the plant has tipped over and that's called lodging. So that big root ball, because it's not flooded all the time, allows for that, but it also allows for the roots to dive deep and access the micronutrients to add to the nutritional quality of the rice. And anecdotally, you hear farmers talking about how when they have the rice process, there's less breakage of the kernels. Mm -hmm. And I can only think that's because it's a healthier plant. So I think I covered maybe those six steps. And also because they're only using eight to 15 day old seedlings, they're also saving time in the field because they're not allowing it to have to grow for another couple of weeks before they transplant. And a lot of times farmers, they share the labor of the land preparation and the planting And even a a tool like a weeder, we say it's cheap, it's only 20 bucks, but it's still 20 bucks. And that can be shared amongst people in the community as well. So if you think about it, as as I say that, if you look at pictures of people farming hundreds of years ago, they're using the same tools that they're using now. So, you know, what has the development community done? You know, they brought them synthetic fertilizers and high yielding seeds that are made by chemical companies that you have to buy chemicals with. And You've seen no improvements in terms of tools for farmers, unless, of course, you're talking about big combines and kind of those type of tractor things. So I've, Which not I've all rambled those... on. <laughs> well, and those larger tractors, 
a small yield farmer couldn't necessarily afford those things. It wouldn't be practical for them to really do that. And the fields are much smaller too. Right, yeah. exactly. Yeah. yeah, we're talking maybe one, one or two acres or something like that. There's a small shareholder Hectors. farmer. Yeah, I just yeah. wanted to add something back to the six-step methodology. So in the very early stages when you're creating the nursery for the plants, and so in conventional farming, when the farmer digs up these 30 to 40 day old seedlings, they bundle them together. Like Ken said, it looks like a bunch of green onions and they actually take them out of the earth and they shake them and they put them, lay them in the sun. And it just seems counterintuitive. If you've ever in your own vegetable garden transplanted in thinned out vegetables like my beets that I was just doing the other day because I sowed them very, you know, many, many seeds, bless you. And then I thinned them out because otherwise you're not going to get any size beet. It's the same thing. I would never take the little transplants and expose them to the sun. I would carefully take them out of where they were growing and transplant them into the soil as quickly as possible. And so with SRI methodology, with this very young seedling that's very, very delicate, they actually transplant individually into this grid pattern that Ken said. In conventional farming, they would take this bunch of seeds, and it could be four to six or even more of these plants, and they, because the water, it's a flooded field, they actually have to really jam it into the earth, otherwise it would float away. And so what happens, the roots actually create a U hmm. shape because they're being forced down. And then it takes about four or five days at least for those roots to kind of catch hold and straighten up and lodge themselves into the earth. Whereas when you do, and they call that transplanting shock. So you've already given the transplant a lot more, you know, they're using their energy just to start their new life in the field. Whereas with the SRI and the much younger seedling and the careful transplanting of one rice plant into this grid, it's just so much better for the rice plant. And yeah, that's let me, why. Let me jump in and clarify. So Carol is talking about, you know, taking the seedlings out of the nursery and bundling them together. Actually, they're in big bundles. They're pretty heavy. And so for women to carry them out to the next field, they leave them in the sun because they're just gathering the whole nursery, getting ready to plant maybe the next day. But with SRI, they take the, it's almost like sod. It's like grass, it's like five or six inches tall. And so they take a piece of sod with them into the production field and they take one seedling at a time and plant it in the grid pattern that we described. And so it's just less work and it's less drudgery again because they're lighter and they could just take what they need because like a handful of sod, you know, you got probably like a hundred seedlings that you can go right down the row. Wow. Well, I think it's helpful to go through the explanation because as a culture, we've really become less connected to our food sources. We don't really understand how they're grown. And I think this is one of our failings and also one of the pieces that keeps us from really making the right choices when it comes to how we support companies that are creating seeds and and the types of use of things like pesticides, fungicides, and herbicides become more commonplace because, again, we're less connected and we don't see it physically. We don't understand that there's an alternative. We think of it as necessary because that's what we're told by huge multinational companies that have 
incredible investment ability in any advertising campaign or lobby campaign that they would choose to undertake. Mm. And so I think it's very, very helpful to go through this entire explanation as we get ready for this second phase of our podcast interview and talk more about this Rice is Life concept and your new book. Now, rice is a major staple across cultures around the globe. Many consume it directly as a grain. Sometimes they're wild grains. Sometimes they're more cultivated. We consume it as flour. We consume it as noodles, as wraps for our like soba wraps, whatnot. And it's one of our most versatile shelf-stable foods. So let's talk about this concept, Rice is Life, and your book. Great. Well, rice is life, as Ken said, to three quarters of the world's population. And, and what is amazing for consumers of rice, and as you said, just imagine rice every day and almost like every meal. You can eat rice for breakfast, for lunch. You can snack on rice snacks or rice crackers. You can have rice for dinner, and you could even have a rice as a dessert. So it's really amazing how versatile rice is. And then when you think about all the countries around the world who actually grow rice and how they use it. So like everybody knows in Asia, you know, you eat rice three times a day with all your meals, but some country like Italy, they use rice for risotto or in Mexico, they use it for Spanish rice, you know, to go with their meals. In Spain, they use it for paella. So every culture has a unique way to not only grow their rice, but also use their rice in their daily cuisine. So when for our 25th anniversary, which was a few years ago, we thought how wonderful to create a global cuisine cookbook that actually featured not only Lotus Foods rice, but rice from around the world and feature it in 65 global recipes from all cultures of the world as well. And then also get to tell our story and to share with readers why we believe and committed so much to changing how rice is grown around the world. So we really got to do it all. And I thank Chronicle Books, our publisher, for giving us the opportunity to do that because it's more than a cookbook. It certainly is a cookbook with 65 wonderful recipes but we really did get to talk about how rice is cultivated around the world, the different varieties of rice, and actually how to cook the best and most perfect rice bowl as well. So I think there's something for everybody in this book. Yeah, and I'll just add, you know, Carol was talking about the book and this whole concept of rice's life. And it's just amazing to me that when you look at what people do on planet Earth, more people derive their livelihood from working in rice than anything else that human beings do. And so it really is a super important crop. And as I mentioned before, feeds so many people and it covers every continent and it just is ubiquitous. So, you know, we really feel like it's a super important topic and we hope that we uh, shed some light on things that people weren't aware of. Just like an everyday greeting and like China might be, you know, you might hear people saying, how are you? But it translates as, have you had your rice today? And so if you respond in the affirmative, then that's kind of like, yes, I'm doing good. And so, and then you see- You've eaten, right? Yeah, yeah. (laughs) And rice is a big part of that. In some cultures, you know, if you haven't eaten your rice, if you stopped and had a hamburger somewhere, 
they would still go home and cook rice because that's not satisfying or something like that. And growing up in a Chinese family, I certainly ate my share of rice growing up. But it was all, you know, long grain white rice, kind of a typical kind of offering that you'd find like in a Chinese restaurant. But so to be able to embark on a business based on a market research trip long ago and come into the world of rice, it's just been a real blessing to be able to be part of that. And the book, I think, is a kind of a culmination of our experiences and the wonderful people that we've met along the way and the beautiful, aromatic, tasty, nutritious, and delicious type of rice that we have encountered. So it's been been a great journey. Wow. Well, I wanted to share with you, too, some news from my personal life. I went ahead and took an, a food sensitivity test in order to see where I fared in certain things because I understood I have a little bit of a reaction when I eat wheat and mm. also other grains sometimes. And what I learned by taking this test is that I do not have a bad reaction to rice at all, which I knew to be true, but it was nice to see it affirmed. And so I'm having to eliminate, well, basically wheat, rye, and a few other grains from my diet to then refocus that. And so I'm choosing rice. And <laughs> I'm thinking about all of the great things that I can cook with rice, considering that you have noodles, you have wraps, you have rice cakes, you have rice that you can use leftover and even mix with a little bit of honey and make kind of a muesli style dish. Mm -hmm. I'm also, as it would turn out, sensitive to dairy, which I also knew, knew to be true because when I had milk, I would get a lot of phlegm and even sometimes when I had cheese. And so having more knowledge, that knowledge is power, shifting my dietary choices just a little bit in order to achieve better health and then bring into my home nutritious recipes that can benefit my kids. Because if I have a sensitivity, guess what? They're kind of likely to, too, because that's mm. kind of how genetics work. <laughs> yeah. So it's rice is considered non-allergenic. And of course, I think you're talking about gluten intolerance, maybe. No, it wasn't. It's not gluten. It's other oh. proteins. And oh. so that's why it's also across many different of the grains. So it doesn't seem I have no gluten sensitivity, which I found surprising because I have one gene for, I've also taken the genetic tests, right? So mm. I have one gene for celiac, but apparently it doesn't represent at all. Right. But there are a certain amount of people that do have celiac disease. So yeah. rice has become a major type of food ingredient for those folks. But I'll just say, while many people eat rice, you know, in many of these Asian countries, there's also blood sugar issues mm. because they're eating so much white rice, which is a simple carb, as opposed to eating whole grains like a red rice or a black rice, which is kind of how we got our start in what we call pigmented rice varieties, introducing those into the marketplace. And those are complex carbohydrates. So carbs are the most efficient way that we derive energy Yet, because they're whole grain, the starch doesn't convert to sugar so fast. So it's better in terms of overall health. Yeah, I love using the black rice in my soups and stocks and things like that. And it actually lends a little bit of color to the soup water itself. Mm -hmm. And you can taste its wholeness. I mean, it just is more complete. Well, that was the first pigmented rice that we found in 1993 during our first market research trip through China. And we learned about the nutritional value of black rice. In Chinese medicinal medicine, they say it's a blood tonifier. It aids in the circulation of the blood. It's high in qi and invigorates the spleen. It brightens the eyes. 
I mean, it's just a real powerful food. And then the Bhutanese red rice was our first red rice. And that was my personal favorite because it happened to be a whole grain rice that cooked up like a white rice in only 20 minutes. But, you know, just this roasted nutty flavor. But, you know, going back to your health issues, one of the other benefits of rice is that it's very easy to digest. And that's why after you, you know, some people say after you go to and you eat Chinese food, which is mainly, you know, rice-based too, maybe after a couple of hours, you're hungry again because your body is able to digest rice incredibly fast. Well, and it has complex proteins present within. So I know several people who have gone on a journey towards more plant-based and are worried that they're not going to get enough protein. But rice, legumes, beans all have proteins in them. And by combining them, you can get a complete protein profile, mm -hmm. especially if you're using things like those darker grains, the black rice, the red rice, the wild rice varieties. And also just considering that when you talk about the Chinese culture or Japanese culture, it's, you know, the rice might be a primary portion of the meal, and then they'd have a bit of fish or a bit of the meat. They're not consuming a giant slab of steak the way that we do here. And so they're actually consuming on average less animal protein as a part of the whole meal. But that doesn't mean that they're sacrificing their protein levels because of the other plant sourced proteins that they're introducing into their diet. And so I think if we can shift this paradigm from one where we consider our meal to be a slab of steak, a little bit of vegetables and a giant piece of bread or pasta or whatever, that we can actually create a healthier future where we can feed all of humanity because we still have people around the world and even here in the United States that are food insecure. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. it is something that we need to be, I think, more aware of, more cognizant of, and also ensuring that people get the right nutrition because without the right nutrition, all sorts of deficits happen in our lives. We become less healthy. We tax our later lives by ultimately ending up on five medications that are prescribed for us to help manage health issues that wouldn't exist mm -hmm. if we had eaten a healthier plate of food each day. Amen. Yeah, I think this is a call to action. You know, the, the next farm bill is, is up for discussion now. And I think part of the problem is what do we subsidize in terms of agriculture? Largely, it's uh, corn and soybeans. A lot of times, it's not even for human food. It's for feeding cattle or creating uh, fuel. And so why don't we focus on the things that will help people mm -hmm. to have a more nutritious and robust type of a diet? And diverse. And diverse. Wouldn't that serve people better than you know creating materials for cheap sugar sources or for ethanol? You're here. I think so. <laughs> Well, I have so enjoyed this conversation thus far. I want to be sure to direct people to where they can find your new book. And also to just remind everyone, you can deepen your understanding of what Lotus Foods in, is doing, including perusing the plethora of products that they produce and have done so for many, many years now at lotusfoods.com. I did see a slider up on your site showcasing the book, so I imagine they can link directly from there. But where do you prefer that they go to buy this book? Well, no, I mean, the book is going to be available nationwide starting in October. But they can actually, if they go onto our website, you can actually pre-order it on some of the links that we provide. But it's really where the consumer prefers to shop. That's great. Now, can they pre-order directly from your site? Yes. 
Fantastic. And I have a request for our community as well, because I think it would help highlight what you're doing with this book. Would you be able to provide us with a recipe or two as a foundation that we can include in the blog? Oh, absolutely. In fact, Ken has his Ken's fried rice recipe in the book and with a great story. So that would be a nice start. And then we're happy to include another one as well. Oh, I love that. Again, you know, offering people simple solutions to try and improve their health and their diet through these simple steps, I think is fantastic. Now, before we wrap, I want to offer you the floor. Is there a question that I haven't asked that you wish I had? If so, you can ask and answer it. Or if not, I'd love to have parting words from each of you. I don't have a question. And do you? Or a comment that we didn't cover? You know, I think when we talk about climate and how nutrition ties into it, that we it's not like one or the other, that we can do all of that at the same time. I think sometimes people get confused, like, how can I be part of the solution for something so big like climate? But I think if we take time and ask ourselves that question, there's many entry points for people, you know, whether it's the things that we're talking about in terms of why it matters, like how your rice is grown or any food, because I think how food is grown is part of the problem. Agriculture is, is part of the problem. And that's why I was advocating for, you know, a better ag policy. So I think somehow we need to create a sense of urgency without freaking people out that, you know, like, I don't think that's going to help to just scare people into making, taking action. But I think people have power within them if they recognize it. And I'm talking about more than recycling, but there's many ways that if you just seek it out, there's ways within everyone's life that there's something that I think they can help improve and kind of create the momentum and the movement that we need to actually create the change that we're looking for. And so that's, I think, my hope every time we have an opportunity to speak with people is to activate others so that they can kind of join in on the movement. That was great. And I just want to add that people have to realize how much power they possess. And if they could use that power with their voice, with their actions, and also with their pocketbook. And so we have choices in this world. So by educating yourself and your friends and family, you can actually make those choices that actually can matter and make a difference. Well, that is a perfect landing. Now, I want to thank you both so much for taking this time to join me today. Thank you. It's been a pleasure, Karina. Thanks for having us. I will be sure to include links to where you can learn more about Lotus Foods, their new book, Rice's Life, and about Carol and Ken directly with our show notes. Visit orlonutrition.com for our complete blog about this episode, including features you won't find anywhere else, like those two recipes. Thank you for joining us on this journey today. I hope you've learned something about agriculture, its impact, and how regenerative practices can really create a cascade of benefits beyond simply protecting our environment. I would encourage you to reach out to me directly via our social channels by simply messaging us via DM at Orlo Nutrition, that is O-R-L-O Nutrition, or you can send me an email directly to hello at orlonutrition.com. As mentioned earlier, you can also reach Lotus Foods at lotusfoods.com. As we close today's show, I hope you'll raise a cup with me as I say my closing words. Here's to your health.
Thanks for listening to Nutrition Without Compromise. To make sure you never miss an episode, subscribe, rate, and review wherever you listen to podcasts. If you'd like to learn more, visit orlonutrition.com and join our mailing list. You'll gain access to complete show notes, features, and informative blogs because nutrition shouldn't be an either-or.